and I provided a few alternate disclaimers. And then ethics counsel responded to me again without a letter, but just by way of telephone call saying, no, that's not what I told you to say, is it? You're going to use the disclaimer that the bar requires, and it's going to be in this font, it's going to be at this place in the article, and it's going to be in bold. And the words are going to be exactly what we tell you to, and it's at that point that I'm like, yeah, never mind, we're just, we're just going to fight. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is uh, away this week and unable to be with us. I, of course, uh, write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law, and uh, Craig writes the blog, May It Please the Court. Before we get started, of course, we'd like to thank our sponsors, uh, Clio, uh, the web-based practice management uh, solution, which is available at goclio.com. Also, Above All Legal, a new online job board for the legal community. You can find out more about Above All Legal at abovealllegal.com. And uh, of course, uh, Firm Manager from LexisNexis, uh, a cloud-based practice management solution from LexisNexis. That's available at myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. So uh, be sure to check out all of our wonderful sponsors. Well, last week on this show, uh, we we had a show uh, titled Legal Blogging, Ethics, and First Amendment Rights, uh, and we kind of focused in on the case out of Virginia of Attorney Horace Hunter. We had on three bloggers who discussed uh, the controversy there and uh, shed some light on that. Uh, just to kind of recap a little bit, the, the, the Virginia Bar uh, broadened disciplinary action against uh, attorney Horace Hunter uh, after Hunter uh, blogged, uh, wrote on his website about uh, uh, cases uh, that he was involved in uh, and uh, he did not, although he did not use uh, clients' names, uh, the uh, Virginia Bar uh, nonetheless claimed that the Hunter's uh, posts there constituted uh, advertising uh, and should include disclaimers. Uh, we're going to get into the meat of this a, a lot more as this program goes on. But today we are very fortunate to, uh, to have attorney Horace Hunter himself uh, joining us to discuss these issues and to give his perspective on these issues. Uh, and uh, I'm going to introduce him in just a moment. I will say that uh, as we did last week, we uh, also had invited the Virginia State Bar Association to participate in this show. Uh, but uh, once again, they've they've declined to do so because uh, because of the fact that the disciplinary matter is, is pending um, and they did not feel it was appropriate. Uh, so, uh, without further ado, let me uh, introduce uh, Attorney Horace Hunter. Attorney Horace Hunter is uh, 
with the firm Hunter and Lipton. Uh, his primary practice areas are criminal defense, commercial litigation, and family law. Uh, Attorney Horace F. Hunter, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're very glad to have you, and uh, we look forward to, to discussing this issue uh, more. Uh, you know, I, I just gave you kind of a, a brief introduction, but before we get into kind of the meat of the issues here, uh, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit more about, you know, in general, about your practice uh, and what you do. Okay. Well, I've been practicing law now since 1999. I opened up my own law practice right out of law school. And the majority of my practice is uh, criminal defense. I do do a significant amount of personal injury and some commercial litigation. Actually, I don't do any family law, at least not anymore, if I can avoid it. But uh, the my, my bread and butter is still essentially criminal defense, both in state and federal courts. Okay. And uh, let's, uh, let's start to talk about this. I- when when did you how did you first get get wind of the fact that that the Virginia bar was uh, was looking at what you were doing online well i received a letter from ethics counsel leslie haley in july of last year uh and the letter indicated there was a very brief letter that indicated that my blog was not in compliance with the rules on advertising uh specifically rule 72a and that in order to bring my website and blog into compliance, I needed a disclaimer uh, that essentially said this is for advertisement purposes only. The case results discussed herein are not intended or cannot uh, predict an outcome in future cases or something along those lines. And what were you doing? Uh, Tell us about your blog and your website. What, What did you have up there? Okay, well, I developed the website uh, approximately two and a half uh, to three years ago. Uh, The website is like many other websites, attorney websites. It has our practice areas. It has a home page. It has our bios. Uh, One of the unique... uh, one of the unique aspects of uh, Hunter and Lipton's website, though, is that we actually have a blog that we host on the website, and the blog is entitled This Week in Richmond Criminal Defense. And This Week in Richmond Criminal Defense, is, as I'm sure you can imagine, it's uh, a blog that's dedicated to discussing issues of uh, particular relevance in the criminal justice uh, system and things that are of note in the news. Many of the articles, if not most of the articles, uh are discussions of cases in which I have been involved, uh, most of them successfully, whether they be appellate court cases, trial, uh, significant uh, trials that have taken place here in Richmond, and some of the more run-of-the-mill type trials. If there's something unique about the case or something particularly noteworthy, then we will post that or, or we'll, we'll have a discussion about that case on the blog as well. Other discussions include... Uh, you know, topics about, uh, or, or, or at least one article dealing with Alberto Gonzalez when he fired the U.S. attorneys and what the uh, ramifications of that were. We've recently run articles about the uh, Strauss-Kahn case, the implications of the criminal justice system in that matter, how public perception and the realities of the criminal justice system don't always mesh, how there's generally a, a rush to judgment, a presumption of guilt, if you, with, if you will, in these types of cases, and other issues that we just simply feel are important to uh, to the criminal justice system, and those are going to be the types of topics that we'd like to discuss. And was that uh, both you and your partner contributing to that? No, it's primarily me. I, I, I would say that with the exception of maybe one or two articles, I write the blog exclusively. And, and uh, to the extent you're writing about cases that you've involved in, uh, you said that uh, 
I, I, I guess this goes without saying, you, you tend to write about the ones that you were successful in or, or that you had successful outcomes in. Are you, are, right. you, are you giving specifics? Are you talking about cases? Are you giving away names and, and, and uh, you know, uh, yes, names we are. and serial numbers and all of that? No, no, we don't do serial numbers and that type of thing. <laughs> However, we do discuss the name of the individual. And, you know, just as a side note, that's one of the uh, things that came up at the hearing or one of the topics that came up at the hearing when it was suggested by one of the panel members, you know, Mr. Hunter, maybe we could avoid all of this if, or, or at least on one of the issues, like maybe it could just be avoided if you would just simply agree not to post people's names. And the problem with that, though, is that the names are important. I mean, they are part of the cases, uh, and they are part of the public domain in the particular context in which we're writing. But we do, uh, we don't just list the case result and say, you know, we were successful in this case. We go into detail about the facts of the actual trial. And that's what we get into because that's what we want to shed light on. Uh, and as the Supreme Court said in the Gentilly case, there's nothing of more public importance than the government's conduct of criminal trials. So the types of information that we discuss in the articles is going to be a description of the events that actually transpired at trial. And then at the end, generally, there's going to be some type of commentary about why we feel we were successful, what the problems were with the government's case, and why this is a noteworthy case that people should take, uh, you know, take some lesson from uh, in their own lives. And again, it's providing information, and we feel it's if the information is important. And these trials were all trials that were open to the public uh, in any event. Is, is that correct? Yes. So, uh, so you got the it, it, well. Let me just ask one other question on that. I mean, did did you ever feel uh, that you that this was something you should you should clear with your clients, or did did you ever in fact discuss with your clients that you were doing this? In one case, yes, and then uh, I did send letters out in a couple of other cases. But I'll be honest, that was after the bar started uh, investigating it, and at that point in time, I was just curious as to what the feedback would be. And also, to be honest, I did think at some point in time it's, it would be the better course of practice uh, to get client consent prior to writing these articles. But the problem is, is that, well, and first of all, even in thinking that, I never imagined that this would be a Rule 1-6 uh, violation on breach of attorney-client confidentiality. And to this day, I am adamant about the fact that this is absolutely not a breach of attorney-client confidentiality. In terms of getting client consent, I felt and feel now that it's probably the better course of practice to do that to avoid any confusion, but it's certainly not an ethical violation at all. All right. Uh, well, so so you you got this this letter from uh, Leslie Haley at, at, at the bar. Uh, what happened next? How did you respond to that? Well, I actually uh, telephoned uh, Miss Haley to let her know that I was in receipt of her letter. Uh, that I did not agree that this was an advertisement, and I felt that the disclaimer would be inappropriate and would take my writings out of context uh, and would essentially cheapen the speech uh, because, of course, we don't believe that our articles written on this week in Richmond Criminal Defense are advertisements. Uh, so and often the and 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 the articles uh even the ones that that involve cases that I was involved in and discuss case results are oftentimes very critical of the government and sometimes critical of the judiciary in a very respectful way of course 
Um, so I uh, let her know that that was essentially my position, but I was certainly open to discussing it further. I then followed up the letter with or I followed up the uh, telephone conversation with a letter after I'd spent a significant amount of time researching the issue. And I wrote her, I think it was a three- or four-page letter, which provided case sites and discussions of why uh, the blog did not constitute commercial speech. Did you find any, I mean, looking into this at that point, did you find any precedent uh, for this from other from other jurisdictions or from Virginia? I mean, have, have, have bar authorities, ethics authorities attempted to clamp down on blogs in this particular way in any other case that you'd seen? No, never. I mean, when you ask, is there any authority, there's plenty of authority. Yeah. Obviously, that we're able to, to, to cite uh, that, that talks about the dissemination of information in any context, whether it's a pamphlet, whether it's a book, whether it's a newsletter, whether it's this or that, but not specifically whether or not a blog uh, or a state bar regulating a blog uh, and it's kind of interesting, you know, you go back to a case in the 1920s, and I can't call the name off the top of my head, but someone was issuing handbills or pamphlets, uh, and the Supreme Court said this is the dissemination of information. It's as, just as well as could be in a newspaper if the person had their own newspaper. And you can use that same logic and extension to, well, that goes for blogs too. It's that person's uh, – it, it, it's that person's medium by which they're disseminating uh political information or non-commercial information. So, so Horace, so you uh, wrote back to them, and, and uh, I, from, from what you're saying, I take it the sum and substance of your, of your response was that uh, the First Amendment says I can do this. Correct. And, and, then, and then what happened next? Well, the bar's position, and again, this is without any citing of authority or without any follow-up letter from the bar, uh, Bar counsel just seemed rather annoyed, I guess, that I had even taken the time to uh, to uh, to write that letter and wanted to continue to discuss it. And her response to me, and I quote, was, "You don't understand, Mr. Hunter. I said it's commercial speech. Now either you put the disclaimer on there, or I'm filing a bar complaint." And then when and when it was put to me like that, it was kind of one of those things that you just kind of. You know the, the 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 litigator and you are the trial lawyer and you, you your back kind of straightens a little bit and says, "Well, come on then, let's just fight it," and that's where we ended up. And uh, did they? Uh, I know they at some point issued, uh, I guess, a, a formal statement of charges of, of some kind. Is that's that right? correct. And, and as I recall, and I, I'm actually. Digging around on my computer as we speak, I can't I can't seem to find it. I thought I had it on here, but I'm, as I recall, that the statement of charges raised this and, and and also addressed this client confidentiality issue. Right, it raised both the advertising and the client confidences issue. Or, or, or that's correct. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, so so bring us forward from there. They've issued the charges, and then and then what's happened next in the case? Well, as soon as they issued the charges, uh, I immediately sued uh, the Virginia State Bar in federal court under uh, 1983 and sought injunctive relief from them proceeding on on the charges of misconduct. And obviously, I cited the First Amendment as the authority on that position. Unfortunately, the uh, uh, U.S. District Court judge, after he, uh, you know, we briefed the issue on several fronts, but the main issue for the trial judge or the U.S. District Court judge was the abstention doctrine. 
Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the abstention doctrine or want me to explain it at all, but briefly what the abstention doctrine says is that even if the federal court has jurisdiction, which of course they did in this case because this involved the First Amendment and was a federal question and it involved state action, the abstention doctrine essentially says that even where we have jurisdiction, if there is a judicial proceeding or a quasi-judicial proceeding pending in state court, then federal courts should abstain from uh, getting involved until that process has run its course. If that person has the opportunity to present that constitutional issue within that form, and clearly this bar proceeding fell within that. And we argued an exception to that, that where on its face it is just so clearly outside of anything that's ever been decided that uh, it's bad faith for them to even go forward. But, of course, uh, the U.S. District Court judge did not find that bad faith on the part of the Virginia State Bar, and he essentially allowed the uh, bar to proceed without having to decide the First Amendment issue. Okay. Uh, and. I actually finally did find find what I was rifling around for on my computer, which was the this charge, which was issued in, in March of 2011, and then uh, you, you went to court. Meanwhile, the, the the bar had set a hearing. Has has that hearing now, in fact, happened? Yes, we had the hearing on October the 18th. And has anything uh, resulted from that yes. hearing? Yet? Yes, yes, and they just issued the written finding on Monday, although they did rule from the bench and they did announce their decision from the bench the day we actually had the hearing. And what was their decision? Well, their decision was that a that the disclaimer was required, and they did find that the uh, that the uh, not that that not getting client consent prior to uh, posting these articles violated Rule One Six and One Rule One Six's prohibition against uh, revealing attorney-client confidences. However, uh, they did issue the lowest possible sanction that they could under the rules, and we are going to, in fact, appeal that. What was that lowest possible sanction? An admonishment. I, 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 wanted, I did want to play, uh, before we went on air, we were, you and I were talking about last week's show, and I, I just wanted to play uh, one clip from, from last week's show. Uh, among our guests last week was uh, Eric E. Johnson uh, from the University of North Dakota School of Law, and uh, he, he just made a comment uh, that I thought was interesting uh, on a discussion he had with you uh, and, his, and his reaction to, to this whole controversy. So let me just play that clip. And I and I asked him, you know, why? Because my the big mystery to me is why are you fighting this? Why didn't you just do what they asked you? And and he told me, you know, uh, I I I spent some time putting together a letter with case citations, trying to explain to them rationally that I didn't think this was advertising, and and being ready to engage in a discussion with them. And they just came back to me saying, no, it's advertising. Do what we what we tell you. And um, and uh, he uh, uh, decided that uh, if they weren't going to um, sort of engage in a conversation with him and take his argument seriously that he was just going to go ahead and fight it, which is why I'm glad he did. Um, so uh, I really think this is a, a, about them trying to get their disclaimer label on everything, which in my mind wouldn't pass First Amendment scrutiny. Thoughts on that? Uh, uh, do you think that this – do you think that in some way you're, you're be, being made kind of a scapegoat? Here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't know and can't say 
Uh, one of the things that I have told people, and I've said this very candidly, and I did tell the guests that when we had an opportunity to speak, you know, the majority of my practice is criminal defense, okay? I've never been known as a First Amendment guy, uh, so to speak. So this case, in a lot of ways, did not come down to my First Amendment principles as much as it came down to ego. Uh, you know, like he, like I told him, I sat down, spent a significant amount of uh, time doing research and preparing a letter. And when the Bar Council or when Ethics Council's response to me was, you don't understand, Mr. Hunter, I say it's commercial speech, my initial reaction, again, as a litigator is, well, who are you? And, of course, their response is, well, we're the bar and we're here or you're here to do what we tell you to do. And then it starts to go from there. You know what the irony is, of course, too, as I mentioned, the fact that we sued them in federal court. Well, before we sued and when we were just having this discussion, so to speak, there was no uh, negotiations. There was no scholarship. There was no analysis provided to me by the bar as to why a disclaimer was required. Just, well, we, we say so. But then after I sued them in federal court and before the case was dismissed in federal court, now all of a sudden we're having conversation. Now all of a sudden we're having these negotiations. Now all of a sudden the bar is willing to capitulate somewhat on their position. Right. Uh, all right. I, w- I want to follow up with that, but we do have to just take a short break right now. So stay with us and we'll be back in, in just a few moments. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. But I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the excitement is they're now able to realize the, the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. This is Kay Kenny at Legal Talk Network, and I'm talking with attorney Mimi Manginis, co-founder of Above All Legal, a new online job board for the legal community. Mimi, how can listeners find out more about Above All Legal? That's simple. Go visit us online at www.abovealllegal.com. And you can also find us at Above All Legal on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. We've been talking to attorney Mimi Manginis, co-founder of Above All Legal. Check it out at abovealllegal.com. That's abovealllegal.com. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager 
is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS-70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis for manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Uh, this is Bob Ambrogi. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is away this week. We are joined by attorney Horace Hunter from the firm Hunter & Lipton in Richmond, Virginia, and we're discussing the controversy surrounding his blog posts uh, and uh, the Virginia Bar's uh, attempts to uh, – uh, well, not attempts. The Virginia Bar is now uh, admonishment uh, of him over this issue. Uh, so, Horace, the the uh, the bar has now, as you said, uh, held a hearing uh, and, and issued uh, its its decision and uh, admonished you. Uh, something uh, that came out as we discussed this last week, and and I wanted to make sure I understood this correctly, but. Uh, one of the points that was raised was, was that you had, had did engage in some negotiations with the bar over the the disclaimer that that you were in fact willing to put some sort of a disclaimer on your posts, but just not the uh, not the disclaimer they wanted. Uh, is that correct? Can you can you explain that a little bit? Okay. All right. Let me back up a little bit. Uh, initially, when the bar contacted me, and I told you that I had spent. Uh, the time uh, putting together the letter with the case sites and ethics counsel said to me essentially, you know, no, I say put the disclaimer on there. I'm filing a bar complaint. There was another process uh, at that point whereby I wrote another letter. I didn't just say at that point we're going to trial. I wrote another letter and said, listen, if you have concerns, that's fine. Let's work this out. Let's collaborate. And in fact, collaboration were my exact words on a disclaimer that satisfies your concerns as well as uh, maintains the integrity of my blog and maintains the integrity of the articles without identifying them as advertisements or being written for advertisement purposes only. And I provided a few alternate disclaimers. And then Ethics Council responded to me again without a letter but just by way of telephone call saying, no, that's not what I told you to say, is it? You're going to use the disclaimer that the bar requires, and it's going to be in this font, it's going to be at this place in the article, and it's going to be in bold. And the words are going to be exactly what we tell you to, and it's at that point that I'm like, yeah, never mind, we're just, we're just going to fight. 
Well, then after I sued them, then, of course, they brought in another attorney and, uh, you know, I guess to kind of work the back channels to see if there were a way in which we could work this out. And to be honest with you, we were very close. And I, they, they essentially said, okay, if you want to use a, uh, an alternate disclaimer, that's fine. You just have to admit that our disclaimer or that our rule is constitutional as applied to your blog. And you're going to have to accept a de minimis dismissal. And my response, of course, was, well, why am I going to accept the de minimis dismissal if you're now agreeing to a disclaimer that I offered you six months ago? And the attorney that was uh, negotiating on behalf of the bar was not really able to say, only to say, look, this is what's coming down from the top. And, you know, that was it. And, of course, I rejected it and said, let's just have a hearing and see what happens. Well, I know that now that now you've uh, gotten uh, Rodney Smola involved in your case. Uh, Rodney, uh, nationally prominent uh, First Amendment uh, lawyer, and uh, I believe he's the president of Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. Former former dean of Washington and Lee University School of Law. Um, and he was my First Amendment law professor at William & Mary, and he was the dean of the University of Richmond Law School when at least two of the panel members uh, were in law school there. So his roots are deep in this area. All right. Well, a good person to have on your team. So, so where is this going now? Where are you headed with this? Well, we are going to appeal to a uh, three-judge panel. It is a circuit court judge uh, panel made up of three circuit court judges that are going to do an on-the-record review. Uh, and again, we'll brief the issue. The uh, bar is going to have an opportunity to brief the issue. We'll have an opportunity for oral argument, and then the case will be decided by the uh, panel. It's not quite a de novo appeal, but it is essentially a de novo appeal to the extent that the conclusions of law are viewed de novo. And in this particular case, there aren't any real factual disputes. The entire case is a legal issue. At, at this point, I mean, I, I know, I know you, I've heard you uh, earlier in our conversation kind of, you know, saying that uh, part of your motivation here was, uh, you know, a little bit of an ego thing and, and, and a little bit of the fact that you're, you know, you're a criminal defense lawyer and, and, uh, uh, you had a, an issue to fight here, uh, but this has really taken on uh, national significance uh, in a lot of ways, and it's obviously getting talked about uh, by bloggers and, and, and news organizations and, and even podcasters, I might say, uh, all over the country. I, I mean, how do you view this case right now? How do you see the significance of this? Well, it is significant, uh, and, and it's significant on a, on, on, on a number of levels. Uh, and you know, I did not know at the time that uh, it was going to gain such national prominence in terms of the discussion. I've always felt and still feel that the issue is very straightforward. There's a reason that there are no other cases of this type. There's also the larger issue here in Virginia, particularly in this area, that isn't as much to do, doesn't have as much to do with the First Amendment as much as it has to do with the Virginia State Bar uh, and how they've prosecuted attorneys and kind of how they go about conducting their business. And most of the attorneys who I know and most of the attorneys who I have come in contact with since this case has been going on are not as impressed with the issue from a First Amendment perspective, but just the fact that the Virginia State Bar felt that they could come in and say, hey, we say this is commercial speech and you do what we tell you to do. 
again, without any scholarship and without any analysis. And then you start to get into the First Amendment issue and say, wait, uh, the Virginia State Bar is, is – I mean their position is tenuous at best. And even in the decision from the panel that found that, you know, the blog did constitute commercial speech, again, there are no cases cited, there's no authority, there's no scholarship, there's no analysis, just a statement stating this constitutes commercial speech. So, again, there's, there's the uh, First Amendment question, uh, which is obviously the predominant question, but kind of the subtle question and the question that is of the, I guess concerns most of the local attorneys is, you know, where is the bar going with this and why? And, and as this all goes forward, are you continuing to blog? Yes. <laughs> uh, I have not written anything recently, yeah. but the, just this morning, I just haven't had time. Yeah. But I am I blogging goes. about the case, and I'm going to blog about what the result of the 18th hearing was and uh, what our plans going forward are. Okay. But absolutely, we're going to continue to blog. Very good. Well, well, Horace, we're getting near the end of end of our time here. I, I always like to wrap up our show by giving our guests the opportunity to have the final word on on the topic. Uh, so, so you know, just just to kind of wrap things up. Uh, what are your what are your concluding thoughts on on this case and and where we're headed with it? Well, you know, I don't know that I've got any uh real any, any any special concluding thoughts. Just to say that again, the issue is important. And although it isn't necessarily the reason why I got in and it's not a lot of what's driving what what had what has happened thus far, the first amendment is extraordinarily important. And it's not just important for me in terms of what I do because clearly a lot of the reason or one of the one of the reasons that I do blog it 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 is for uh you know marketing purposes at least some of it but it is also extremely important particularly in the context of criminal cases that the public watch what the government does and to the extent that i can provide a window into the criminal justice system uh to the public through my blog i'm going to continue to do that well, Horace Hunter, uh, we will continue to follow this case. We really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. I know that uh, your law firm, Hunter & Lipton, uh, in Richmond, Virginia, is on the web at hunterlipton.com. And uh, I, 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 from what you say, I take it we can uh, check back in there from time to time to get uh, updates on what's happening with this case. Are, are there any other good sources for uh, following this case that you'd recommend? Or is that, well, is that the, the Washington Post has done a couple of articles, and uh, – I, and 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 obviously the uh, Virginia Lawyers Weekly, I believe, has run four or five articles on it now. So, if you go to the uh, VirginiaLawyersWeekly.com, there should also be some information and some good insight uh, regarding the issue. And there's an interesting discussion on LinkedIn on the uh, Virginia Attorneys Forum uh, about the case, and you can get a good idea of what Virginia attorneys think about the case going on with the uh, Virginia State Bar. All right. We will check all of those things out. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. We really appreciate your being with us today. Horace thank Hunter. you for having me. And uh, Anytime. Thanks. And, and to our listeners, uh, just a reminder that uh, you can now get CLE credit through the West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center to find out how you can do that. You can find all the Legal Talk Network shows in iTunes in the podcast library there. 
We will be back next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. See you next week. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.